We have all read the accounts of the death of our Lord from the Scriptures. Those passages in the Gospels which speak to His passion, those hours culminating with His death upon the cross. And I hope indeed that we never become so familiar with those passages, so familiar with hearing the account of the death of our Lord, that our hearts become dull or unmoved at what He did and what He went through for us. I know that what Jesus did is beyond our comprehension. And yet, we need to study. We need to strive to understand what took place that day. And I know that what Jesus did and all that it involved is beyond our appreciation. And yet, we must strive to embrace that and appreciate to the best of our abilities all that He did. What a wonderful God is ours. With the wisdom of telling us that we are to remember His death. And we do so periodically as a wonderful time of remembering Jesus and what He accomplished on the cross. And with that, I'm going to ask that you turn again to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. As today we continue and actually conclude our study, the sovereignty of God and the cross of Christ, as we come to the pinnacle, the culmination of our Lord's redemptive work, what He did on the cross. We've been looking here at this text in Acts chapter 4 at verses 27 and 28. So follow with me. I'm just going to read those two verses for now. For truly in this city there were gathered together against Thy holy servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Thy hand and Thy purpose predestined to occur. We've been, as I said, looking at these verses and we understand that they follow the arrest of Peter and John for preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then following their subsequent release from prison, they come with the rest of the disciples and this is the prayer that they offer. Contained in this prayer, we find sound theology. And this is what we looked first at from verse 28. What they said, the teaching from their prayer, that God is sovereign in all His ways, in all His power. God is sovereign. From there we went back and picked up in what occurred, the events regarding their prayer. And that is found in verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against Thy holy servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do. And that's what we've been looking at. What did they do? We actually began by looking at God's sovereignty in the sending of His Son, God's sovereignty in ordering the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' sovereignty in arranging the Last Supper, Jesus' sovereignty in allowing His arrest, and we left off with Jesus' sovereignty presiding over His trials. Last Lord's Day, we looked a little bit about the trials of our Lord Jesus, and we had these comparisons. The first comparison was their trickery and His honesty. They brought false witnesses and liars. They could not find anything with which to charge our Lord, but still in genuine and complete honesty, He told them that He was indeed eternal God, the great I Am. So their trickery and His honesty. We then looked at their inability and His sovereignty. Even though the Jews thought they had what they wanted, there was nothing they could really do about it. They had to get Pilate to go along with them and crucify Jesus. So we saw in the text that they could not crucify Jesus. They did not have the authority. And Pilate did not have the authority unless it was given to him by God, which is what our Lord Jesus said. And so we saw that not only could the Jews not crucify Jesus, but Pilate could not, not crucify Jesus. He had to crucify Jesus because that was the sovereign plan of God. Today we come and conclude with Jesus' sovereignty on the cross. And I'm going to bring three more comparisons, three more contrasts. We'll spend the most time with the first one and look at the last two only briefly. The first one is their cruelty and His dignity. In the events leading up to the cross, following His trial, or actually involved some of them with His trial, we see their cruelty and His dignity. For this, I want to ask if you would please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 26 as we see Jesus at the hands of the Jews. Needless to say, I cannot touch on every single aspect of what took place in their cruelty to Jesus but we will look at several. Here in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus at the hand of the Jews, we saw from this passage last week that Jesus tells them the truth. He says to them that He is the eternal Son of God. That He is the One who is the great I Am. And now if you would please look down to verse 68. As he says that in verse 64, you have said it yourself, and I tell you that hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The Jews, the high priest, tears his robe. They think they have what they want. They, they condemn him as being guilty of death. And now beginning 
in verse 67, we have this series of things that they do to Jesus. And the first one is they spat on Him. They spit on Him. Let me just say, first of all, that sometimes we might think that this is a small thing. Sometimes we might think that this is a trivial thing. Of all the things that Jesus went through following these trials, that spitting on Him might be inconsequential. The reality is, this was an extreme insult and affront to God. It is said that one who spit in the presence of his Master was guilty of death. Just in the presence of his Master, a slave would have been guilty of death. If he spit on the ground, it was an insult and an affront. And here they spit in His face. And so if you think about it, they were literally treating God like dirt. Because normally you would spit on the ground. And that was even an affront to do that in front of a a noble or your master. But here they had the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who had just told them that He was the Son of God, who has shown through all that He did in the Gospels that He was indeed the Son of God, the great eternal God come to dwell among men and they spit in His face. It was a nauseous and filthy offense of the worst kind. And they treated Him as being equal to or like dirt. Imagine knowing what you know about Jesus. Could you dare spit in His face? Yet in so many ways, countless people day in and day out, spit in the face of God, treating Him like dirt, with their indifference, with their lack of gratitude, and with their totally lack of worship to Him even on His day. As from where I stand, I can see car after car going by oblivious that this is God's day. And so, in a sense, they spit in the face of God, treating Him as dirt. Actually, perhaps even worse. God, keep us from ever defaming You in such a way. And yet, in this, If you would please turn to Isaiah chapter 50. We see that this is fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 50. I say this to you right up front. We're going to be looking at Isaiah in several chapters 
on several occasions. So, if you want to put a marker there in Isaiah, we'll be heading back to it. But here in Isaiah chapter 50, look down to verse 6. And this one actually goes along with some of the other passages that we're going to look at. So I'm not going to turn back here. Just keep this in mind and see what is said. Verse 6 of Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Prophecy of the spitting and of several other elements that we are now going to see as we turn back in our Bibles to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And let's continue our look at verse 67. So they spit on Him, treating Him as dirt. In... Fulfillment of prophecy some 700 years before. And here's more. So they spit in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him. They beat him. Speaking of with fists. What were they doing? Punching him. Do you remember he was a prisoner? He was bound. So it's not like he could defend himself, not that he would, but he was defenseless completely. And in a lot of what we're going to see now, I read one commentator who made the point that when you are arrested, you are you are certainly supposedly charged with something, but you also then become in the care of those who arrest you so that this stuff should have been prevented. This stuff should never have happened. You are protected by the law, even if you're arrested by the law. So none of this should have happened. The high priests show how despicable they are by allowing this to take place. They weren't the ones who were doing it. They were to be their, their guards or their aides. But they slapped him. They beat him with their fists and they slapped him. They were punching him and slapping him. So what you have is pain and insult. Because slapping was an insult. We see that there were many, apparently, who were doing this. As you look at the text, they spat in his face and they beat him with their fists and others slapped him. Plural. They, others. So, obviously, there were a number. Punching Jesus. Slapping Jesus. Now, I know that you've all seen television and movies where guys get in fights and... uh, beating people up and somebody punches somebody in the face and kicks him in the face and hits him with a table in the face and they get up and their face looks the same. Especially if they're the star. Their hair looks good still. That was not the case with Jesus. 
Real punching bruises. Real punching causes swelling. Deformity of his face began at the hands of the Jews. And it will continue from there. I want to now ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, look down to verse 6. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. This was our Savior at the hands of the Jews and as we will see at the hands of the Romans. Nobody took care of his wounds. Nobody bandaged him. There was welts and raw wounds and bruises. This is what was going on with Jesus. This is also a prophecy from the Scriptures. Here is the real promised Messiah. You see, the Jews were expecting some king to come to deliver them from the Romans. But if they had known the Scriptures, they would have known that the real Messiah was to become and He was to be abused and mistreated. And as we will see from even other passages in Isaiah, this was something they should have known. And they were in the middle of fulfilling prophecy where the Messiah is mistreated and bruised. Back to our text again. Matthew chapter 26. They spit on Him. They beat Him. And now let's look at verse 68 from Matthew 26. They mocked Him. As they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Prophesy. Now we know from parallel accounts that they had blindfolded Him. They had blindfolded Him and they began to strike Him, hit Him again, more beating, more hitting. And as He's blindfolded or had His head covered, they said, Ha ha! Ha 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 ha! Tell us, who is it who hits you? You're the Messiah? You're God? Tell us! Who did it? I can almost not even speak about doing it. What mockery of the Son of God. They spit in His face. They punched and slapped Him. Then they blindfold Him with their spit all over His face. And they mock Him. I tell you the truth. They said, Who hit you? We know who it was. Two thousand years later, we know. It's right here in the Scriptures. The guards of the Pharisees were the ones hitting. Two thousand years later, we know. 
And I'll also guarantee you this. Though He said nothing, Jesus knew. And on Judgment Day, they will know that He knew. You want to know the God that you were spitting on and beating and mocking? He will stand before you as your judge as He condemns you to eternity in hell. Don't mock the God of the Bible! We have a nation, a government that is mocking the God of the Bible. Saying that we are fools for believing Him. That this is nothing but foolishness. That He did not exist. That He was not God. That we should not believe this account. That we are fools for believing in Jesus as the Son of God. They're mocking our Lord. He knows. He knows. And one day they will know that He knows. They will stand before Him and they will fall before Him because every knee will bow. Yes, every knee should be bowing now, but every knee will bow then. And I don't even think that they will be asking Him for mercy Because as common grace is removed, they will probably be shaking their fist at Him and cursing Him as He consigns them to hell. These people today that mock our God, and you know how they do, God have mercy on them. He knows. But I must move quickly. Now, we briefly consider Jesus at the hands of Pilate. Now, was Jesus at the hands of the Jews? And again, there's much more that we could have seen there. But please turn with me now to John, John's Gospel, chapter 19, as we look at Jesus at the hands of Pilate. Now, I remind you of what we saw last week from John 18, where Jesus was before Pilate in his trial, and he was dealing with Pilate there and speaking about the things of his kingdom and what his kingdom were like. My kingdom is not of this world. And then he tells him that he had no authority because he was God and Pilate was really upset. And Pilate tried to release him because he did not want to have anything to do with this man. Remember, that's what his wife even told him, that she had suffered greatly over this man in a dream and have nothing to do with him. And so Pilate was trying to release him. Don't, don't, I don't want you to think that I think Pilate was innocent in this. Pilate was guilty. Pilate had no guts, no fortitude, no morality in his leadership. He gave in to the crowd, the popular opinion poll of the day. Sound familiar? But Pilate 
was trying to release Jesus. And in an effort to do so, we have in verse 1 of chapter 19, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Had him scourged. People, you know what scourging is. Scourging, as you have heard it described, is a horrible act, a horrible punishment, borne out upon criminals where they would take the criminal, they would take the person, and they would likely take his hands, handcuff them to a pole in something like that, and then trained Roman soldiers, probably one on one side and one on the other, would take whips with leather whips, and at the end of those whips, they would have chips or pieces of bone or chips or pieces of metal or whatever they could find that would do the best job to inflict the most pain. And then they would start to beat the prisoner on the back. One on one side, one on the other, one lash after another. And the bones and the metal and the whips would literally tear their back open, bleeding, raw, like that passage we read in Isaiah 1. Wounded, open, raw. Tearing the flesh off of His back. Imagine the pieces of our Lord's back flying through the air at the hands of their cruelty. The blood of our Lord strewn all around. All over that place. All over that place where they would have scourged Him. Tearing our Lord's back apart. How cruel bloody and raw. And despite what you might think, Rome had no limit of 40 lashes as the Jews did. They just kept doing it until they stopped. Many a criminal died from being scourged. And what happened here at this affected the rest of his body. He's already beginning to lose a lot of blood. His blood was not only shed on the cross. It actually started in Gethsemane. But it certainly really began here at this scourging. And so he would begin to lose a great deal of of blood from the scourging and from the other punishment that they were inflicting upon Him. And it causes your heart to pump faster, to try to pump blood which isn't there. And it causes you to thirst greatly because you need to take in liquid. This is what began at the scourging. 
We also see here in verse 2 that they also mocked Him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. The crown of thorns, likely the large, really long thorns that are prevalent in Mediterranean climates. And they would have pushed it down on His head And other texts tell us that they were beating him with rods, likely beating him on those thorns, sticking into his head. Any of you who ever suffer a head wound know they bleed a lot. And so now not only is his face disfigured from being punched and beaten, it is covered in blood everywhere. Back, ears, face, blood dripping down all over him from what they were doing. This is cruelty. And this is mockery. For the crown was a crown of thorns. And the robe being purple meant that he was the king. They obviously knew the charge or what had been said to Pilate, and that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. They knew. And so they mocked him in this way. They mocked our precious Savior in this way. And even in this text it says that they were beating him. They put a crown of thorns upon his his, uh, head and arrayed him in purple robe And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him blows in the face. Hail, King of the Jews! Little did they know that this one that they were mocking so, that this one that they were being so cruel to, was the King of kings. God in the flesh. And they were beating Him and mocking Him. He was beaten and He was scourged. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He had blood dripping everywhere. Behold, your Savior. I want to make one more comment. If you look down to verse 17 here from 19. They were also cruel to Him in His carrying of the cross in all that He had gone through. Verse 15 and following that uh, Pilate condemns him to be crucified. They delivered him up to be crucified. And in the first part of verse 17, they took Jesus therefore and went out bearing his own cross. Now we know from the parallel passages that he did not get far carrying his own cross. He had already been through so much. 
that it was impossible for him to do it. And again, I, I think the best accounts tell us that when, when he was carrying his cross, he was likely only carrying the beam upon which his hands would have been nailed. The, the other part would likely have been already at the destination. It, it's just more efficient that way. And the Romans, the Romans were very efficient at this. They did this a lot. But still he's carrying this, at least carrying this beam with him on his back. And they didn't care that he was hurt. They didn't care that he was Jesus. They didn't care that he had gone around doing nothing but good to people, healing people, feeding multitudes, caring for people, giving sight back to the blind. They didn't care. He's a criminal to be crucified. And so they would have whipped him to keep him going down the road, heading to Golgotha. Now these are all the cruelties. Not all, but much of the cruelty that we find here in the crucifixion of our Lord or leading up to the crucifixion of our Lord. What about Jesus? Their cruelty, His dignity. His dignity. In all of this, He was silent. In all of this, you never hear our Lord cry out for mercy. You never hear our Lord even cry out in pain. That's not to say there wasn't pain, because there was. As true man, he had true, real nerve endings on his back where they were whipping. On his head, where they put that crown of thorns. On his face, where they were punching him. And in his heart, with their mocking and their spitting. There was pain. Real pain. As much pain as any of us would have felt had we had to undergo this. True pain. But yet never do we read of Him crying out, asking for mercy. Never do we hear our Lord even ask His Father to put an end to it with those twelve legions of angels. Rather, He relied upon His Father as He went through the pain, just as He tells us to do. He relied upon His Father. I want to ask you to turn again to Isaiah, and this time to Isaiah 53. And we will come back to this text again. But for now, I ask you to look at Isaiah 53, verse 1 and following. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot 
And like a root out of the parched ground, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. Imagine what Jesus looked like on the road to the cross. Did He look like a king? Stately appearance? Fine linen robes? Bloody, beaten, deformed, disfigured from the cruelty of Rome. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now look down at verse 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Their cruelty, his dignity. We have this fulfillment in what we see in our Lord Jesus going through this ordeal. Here is our God. He did not cry out. He did not revile them. I want you to look at a, a passage of, a, of one who knew firsthand what happened. Look at First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Down to verse 22. Back up to verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. This is where He was going. This is where He was heading. Peter knew. Peter knew what our Lord did. Peter knew what happened at that crucifixion. And now, let's turn back to John chapter 19. Having seen their trickery and His honesty, their inability and His sovereignty, and having seen their cruelty and His dignity, we now look at their brutality. 
in the crucifixion. Their brutality in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. There is not much to say here because if you look at verse 17 again, they took Jesus therefore and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha and there they crucified Him. And that's what they said. That's what is said in, in all of the Gospels. They crucified Him. It does not go into detail. It does not give a description of what crucifixion is. I would imagine that all of the Gospel writers and the apostles would have all considered that everybody knows what crucifixion is. That when Jesus spoke of taking up His cross and taking up your cross and following Him, they would have all understood. But today, we don't know what crucifixion is. Really, it's only through history and archaeology that we understand what crucifixion was. And so it was not described. But you know what it is. Because being Christians, you've studied the accounts. And you know that they would have taken those spikes and driven them in His hands. This was all considered the hand. And they would have put the the spikes right there so that His weight would have been able to be borne by His arms on the cross. Lifted Him up. Either they would pull it up with ropes and then nail His feet. Or if it was one big cross, they'd nail His hands and His feet and then raise it up and plunk it down in a hole. But that's too hard, you see. More efficient if they just put it in the cross beam and then pulled it up with ropes and nailed His feet after He was up to a scaffold that was already erected. Either way, it's horrible. Painful. Excruciating pain. The weight of your entire body upon spikes through your wrists. You cannot breathe. The blood gushing out through your arteries. It was a horrible death. That's why Rome did it. It's an example for you to keep in line. Do what we tell you or there you will be. And so the text tells us that they crucified Him. It was brutal. It was merciless. Now, I just also mention that here in the Gospel of John, you also see in verse 34 that they pierced His side and immediately there came out blood and water. I told you a few moments ago that all of the ordeal that He had gone through would have caused more water to gather in his heart sack and around his lungs. So that was the proof that he had gone through so much and indeed that he was dead on the cross. They pierced his side, but 
They did not break his bones like they did to the others. If you're there still in uh, verse 34, just look back. This verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, that they saw that he was uh, the dead and they did not break his legs. And then they pierced him. But just in saying that, they broke their legs while they're on the cross. Ugh! They would come along with lead, usually large, like what we would call a sledgehammer, and just bash their legs. And they did that because the only way you could breathe was to every once in a while push up on your spiked feet and try to catch your breath. But if your legs are broken, you can't do that. So it caused them to die quicker. But that the Scriptures would be fulfilled Not a bone was broken in our Lord. And so I ask you this. Here's their brutality. Here's their brutality. But what of Jesus? Why was He there? Why did He go through all this? Why did He suffer this way? It was their brutality. And it was His mercy. His mercy for you and for me. His mercy drove Him to the cross. His mercy for us is why He gave His life. Again, back to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, here is what He did. Verse 4 again, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, the chastising for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquities of us all to fall on Him. Their brutality, His mercy in paying for our sin debt. He suffered and took our sins, the sins of unworthy men and women, sinful men and women. And He gave His life for us. That's mercy. And what was the end of that mercy? His desire to have you with Him through all eternity. That's the mercy of our God. 
Let me ask you to please turn with me to the uh, book of Hebrews real quick. Chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Just the first two verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before Him endured the cross. What is that? That is you. You are the joy set before Him. That you would be with Him through all eternity. That's why He endured the cross. There is no other reason for Him to have gone to the cross other than to redeem you from your sin. And so that's the joy set before Him. You in His presence. Could there have been any more brutality? And yet He did it out of mercy. Out of mercy. I have one more that I'm going to mention. I ask you to turn back to John 19. Their cruelty, His dignity. Their brutality, His mercy. Their futility and His eternality. Chapter 19 of the Gospel of John tells us a little bit or tells us in some detail about what happened on the cross. We have other accounts of our Lord on the cross, but I want to ask you to look at verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished, that's your redemption. Because while He was on the cross, he was not passive. He was not merely dying. He was actively paying your sin debt. The Father was actively pouring out your wrath upon His Son. Jesus took every drop of the cup of the wrath of God and it was accomplished. That the Scripture might be fulfilled, He said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to His mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the wine, He said, It is finished! And He bowed His head and gave up His Spirit. The Jews nor the Romans killed Jesus. They did not. He gave up His life. You can't kill God! And so no matter what they thought, no matter how victorious 
they thought they were. They did not kill Him. Neither the Jews nor the Romans. They did not kill the Lord of glory. He gave up His Spirit. He, at the time it was all completed, as sovereign even in His death, gave up His life. Yielded up His Spirit. They thought they had accomplished it. They thought they were finally rid of Him. But even with all their cruelty and brutality, it was all futility when it comes to killing God. Because He is the eternal Son of God. And you can't kill God. So He sovereignly gave up His life. Just as He said He would back in chapter 10. This is where we close today. Well, almost. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gets killed. For the sheep. No. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my Father. They did not have the authority to kill Him. But He had the authority to lay it down. And as we know from the Scripture, to raise it back up again. To be raised back up again. He had the authority to give His life. And as we know, He did not stay dead. He accomplished our redemption and yielded up His life on the cross for us. And as we know, He was in the tomb for three days and then was raised again to life. Now, Acts chapter 4. This is what these disciples were praying about. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. It was all part of God's sovereign plan. And in every aspect of that plan, whether it was when He came, in His incarnation, whether it was in His working 
to see the greatest miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, forcing the Jews to have to crucify Him, whether it was seen in our Lord's sovereignty, in the Lord's Supper, in knowing Judas's heart and knowing all that would happen, whether it was in His arrest and His control in allowing the disciples to leave, whether it was all through His trials and even on the cross, He was sovereign in control of everything. And it was all for us. It all happened according to the eternal plan of God for you, for me. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.